you smell that? What's that smell? That's what everyone at the party was thinking that night. (laughs) No one could quite put their finger on what it was. It smelled strangely familiar. You didn't need to be a bloodhound to catch the scent. It was quite pugnant. It was almost suffocating the atmosphere. It filled the entire house, this sweet sense that, uh, that came from somewhere. <laughs> Where was it coming from? But for the more astute nodes that evening, someone like Martha, the hostess of the dinner party, she recognized the odor straight away. In fact, she just took one whiff and it started to give her flashbacks of a few days prior. Ironically reminding her why she was throwing this little shindig in the first place. Because a few days ago, her and her sister were standing outside a cave where she had personally laid her brother Lazarus to rest. After four days of anxious waiting, their mutual friend Jesus finally waltzed up to that same tomb better late than never. And when he did, he he requested that the sisters roll back the stone of the tomb. And Martha recalled vividly her fear that the ointments and the perfumes and the fragrances that she used to mask that foul odor of decay and death that had dissipated at that time, and that's when it hit her. That's what was coming to her. That was that smell. It was what she was smelling that night at the dinner party. One of many fragrances folks in her day used to anoint the dead. And now it was invading all the open air of her house and spoiling her dinner party that she had worked so hard to orchestrate. Her house was smelling like a funeral. She was going to get to the bottom of this. She stepped out of the kitchen, ready to investigate the source of this peculiar scent that was upstaging her banquet, distracting everyone from honoring Jesus, the guest of honor, this awkward elephant in the room, a distraction for the reason why they're there, making everyone think they're at a funeral. Instead, Martha intends the atmosphere to be more like a victory celebration, like the chiefs hoisting the Lombardi trophy in a few hours. That's the kind of party she's wanting to throw. But the mood of the party has suddenly seemingly shifted. One can only imagine how confused, if not frustrated, Martha must have been. She surveys the scene. She sees her brother casually reclining like everybody else on the floor around the spread of food because poor people in the first century, they didn't sit at tables and chairs like we did. They sat on the floor on cushions and pillows on the ground to eat. Martha sees the disciples, they're all mumbling to themselves, murmuring about this being such a waste and about just, what about the charity for the poor? She doesn't understand what they're saying and and she catches a glimpse of Judas Iscariot and he's sneering in Jesus' direction, looking like he's just trying to, he's biting his tongue, he wants to say something. (laughs) And that's when she sees what all the commotion's about. And Martha had to bite her tongue as well. It was her little sister, Mary. And Martha could just roll her eyes like all older siblings do. What had Mary gotten herself into this time? Martha's sister, Mary, 
hasn't really made a huge splash if you've been reading along in John's gospel up to this point. She's often lost in the shuffle amongst all the other Marys in the Bible. It's easy to do that because there's six of them total in the entire New Testament. But this Mary, this evening, continues to make a scene whenever she appears. After making a cameo, almost blink-and-you-miss-it appearance in the famous story about her brother in the previous chapter, where she only got one line in before the tears started understandably streaming from her eyes, she now reappears not too long after that episode, almost as if this is a delayed response to that day. That just like her sister Martha, who Jesus promised would see the glory of God that day, well, we forget that Mary was there too, and she saw the same thing. And in her own way, she now responds to what Jesus did then, defying all social norms as Mary is prone to do, doing something that sent shockwaves to everyone watching her. Because at some point during the party, Mary takes it upon herself to wash Jesus' feet. This was not an unusual practice. Foot washing was common, if not expected in those days. It was a standard greeting for someone at the door in the first century Jewish society, especially for a guest of honor who happened to be a rabbi or a teacher, which Jesus was. After you would give him a kiss and the greeting, you'd then provide a means for them to wash their feet, or you would have your slaves do it. Because we've got to remember that everyone in those days went everywhere on foot, and your feet got dirty and grimy and filthy from walking on the those dirt roads covered in who knows what all day. But any practical person would have just used water like they always did. Or maybe the alternative would be some cheap, common olive oil, which everyone had, but not for Mary. No, no. Something was in the air that night. No one could sense it but Mary. Something about that night, that Saturday night before Jesus decided He was going to make his entrance into Jerusalem. Something stirred in Mary to not settle for something ordinary to honor Jesus, the teacher, her Lord. No, no, no. Mary decides to break out the good stuff. Literally, because Mary had to break the, the wax seal on the top of the flask it was contained in. She broke out the good stuff. Mary had smuggled in with her under her family's radar a large flask of really valuable perfume known as nard. Nard was a rare spice. It was harvested and imported all the way from India, making it a precious commodity, especially for someone who lives in Bethany, which is nicknamed the house of the poor. A pound of the stuff, especially pure nard, which the narrator specifies was what she had, it was not watered down, would have traded around 300 denarii, which have broken the bank for most people. An average unsettled worker made one denarius a day. So this perfume Mary has nonchalantly had tonight presumably would be essentially one year's entire paycheck. It would have been cheaper to get tickets to the Super Bowl than to buy a bottle of nard. It was that expensive. Well, maybe not, but you get the point. The text doesn't tell us where she got the expensive perfume. Scholars wonder if it was a family heirloom or something. Because nard was reserved for special occasions. Namely, to anoint the bodies of those most worthy of honor. Important people, like nobles and members of the aristocracy. It wasn't just used on anybody. 
Because among nards, many applications in the ancient world, it was often mixed with other additives as a fragrance for clothing and bodies of interred or buried corpses to camouflage the natural odors odors of decomposition. Again, that's why I'm speculating that those at dinner that night would associate the smell of nard with a funeral. That when they caught a whiff of the nard, they'd be mistakenly not, they wouldn't be mistaken to think they've stumbled into a tomb or a crypt. And this is why Martha is getting these flashbacks to that episode about her brother that are still fresh on her mind. And if you've been a reader of John's gospel, you know that too because it was in the previous chapter. But again, nard signals that this is the burial of an important person, not just anybody, and an excessive amount of spices, which Mary apparently used because it stunk up the whole house, was used for royalty, monarchs, emperors. And as scholar Rodney Reeves put it, it must have smelled like a king was buried in Bethany that night. And for Mary, it was. With Mary, with all the eyes on her, she breaks open the lavish perfume, the Roy's, Rolls Royce of perfume, and that cost an arm and a leg, and not wanting to make and wanting to make the most of this solemn occasion after pouring the entire bottle out on Jesus, a lavish amount, starting with his feet, but likely moving her way upwards and pouring it more liberally across his head and his body letting that costly perfume no doubt run down and soak into every fiber of Jesus' clothing. She was anointing him like they did of kings of old. She eventually will take one of Jesus' feet in her hand and in reverence, like that of a slave, foreshadowing what Jesus himself will do in the next chapter for his disciples. An example, Jesus says he set for them that he commands them to imitate for one another. Mary does here on her own accord without needing to be taught or told embodying what a disciple of her teacher and Lord looks like. And with that other hand, she then takes her hair and she begins to wipe and wash and massage Jesus' feet. Mary's not without her, without her critics. Martha, along with practically everyone else present, except Jesus himself, surprisingly, are besides themselves. They're flabbergasted and they're shocked. Some are even appalled, namely Judas, which John is the only one to single out. Judas, the appointed treasurer of the group, is upset that this valuable nard, which could have been sold for a sizable chunk of change, is seemingly callously wasted what, for what ordinary water could accomplish. Think of the poor, he scolds Mary. Think of the ministry opportunities you are forfeiting down the drain by squandering this perfume on a one-time act. Now, you may dislike Judas for a number of reasons, but if you were there that night, I wager, we'd probably be saying the same thing as Judas right now. Judas is just the only one with the gumption to say what's on everyone's mind the only one willing to stick his neck out and call out Mary's little stunt for what it was, careless and ridiculous and extravagant overkill. Or maybe that's the idea. It's at this point during this unorthodox pedicure, the guest of honor chimes in. 
He's been silent this entire time, letting it all play out. But now Jesus speaks, and he defends Mary, and he interprets for everyone what Mary is doing that apparently no one else could see. Something apparently only she knew that no one else did. She knew, and Jesus knew, how his story was about to end in less than a week. Jesus says, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. My bias towards the Gospel of Mark actually shows a little bit here because I prefer how Mark records Jesus' response that night. Mark says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have, but you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. And she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. It smells like a funeral because for Mary it was. Mary is telegraphing how Jesus' story is going to end without giving you a spoiler warning. She is preaching a sermon yet without words. What's that old saying? The old saying is preach the gospel all the time and if necessary use words. That's what Mary's doing right here and she's doing it with great cost. She's sacrificing a valuable commodity, that nard, which I have to guess she somehow procured and worked hard to acquire. For her, using the nard was not a waste. If anything, she's probably thinking it's not good enough because she knows the cost of the perfume is not is anything in comparison to the cost of Jesus' own life, which he's about to surrender for the sake of the world. And on the eve of Jesus' journey to the cross, she's willing to match that cost with all that she's got. And in doing so, she also risks her reputation. She's willing to look foolish. It's hard to capture how vulnerable Mary is behaving in this moment. Thankfully, she's presumably among friends, but still, they chirp in and have their criticisms because she's acting with abandonment and with reckless abandonment, and she's unashamed and she's unfettered that everyone there is confused, if not comfortable, if not uncomfortable by her actions. She even let her hair down, which was unthinkable for Jewish women in the first century to do. Women never let their hair down in public. It was considered suspicious, if not promiscuous. A more modern equivalent would be like that a woman raising up her skirt just a little bit too high so we can see her thighs a little bit, and everyone in the room is thinking, does she have no shame? Yet here is Mary laying out all her cards, hoping that someone will get a hint. One wonders if Martha and Lazarus, her family, were just standing on the corner, embarrassed that Mary is letting her hair down like this. But I recently learned, thanks to scholars like Susan Miller, that there's actually another reason why women in her day would let their hair down. It was because they were grieving. Women often wore their hair unbound during a period of mourning. And Mary, at great material but also social cost to herself, is expressing not only that not only who she believes Jesus is, but she is now publicly saying that she is mourning. Rodney Reeves says it this way, to her, Jesus was a dead man. That's why her hair was unbound. She was already grieving his death. Like a prophet, Mary seemed to be the only one at the party who could see. <laughs> Never thought of it that way before. That in her own way, Mary was a prophet. 
that this is a prophetic act ahead of time demonstrating her faith in Jesus as the suffering Messiah. Mary is the first character in John's gospel, at least, to show significant insight into the imminent nature of Jesus' death, that Good Friday is right around the corner, is less than a week away, and she responds through her actions, through great personal sacrifice, through hostile stares, through under-their-breath judgments, through doing something uncomfortable to prepare Jesus for burial. And at great risk with tremendous courage and unparalleled chutzpah and humility, but out of strong faith and love for her Lord, she prepares him for burial when no one else thought to do that. Everyone else was celebrating, and rightfully so, but Mary is preparing herself. She's already mourning, and she's already grieving. And you guys, what Mary does is so strange and so noteworthy and so bizarre, it's actually recorded in all four Gospels. John's just the only one to give her a name. Jesus' prophecy in the synoptic is that whenever the Gospel is preached throughout the world, this woman's deeds will be remembered and discussed, and that prophecy has come true. And as I was reading this, you guys, it dawned on me that I think what Mary is doing is a helpful example, and I think it it gives us a helpful symbol, it gives us a word picture of something you and I can do in the next upcoming season. You and I can do something that I think smells like Lent. Have you ever heard of the church calendar? It goes by many names. It goes by the Christian year, the liturgical year, or calendar, the Christian year. Do you know what the church calendar is? This is the responsive part of the message. Please give me an audible response. Do you know what the church calendar is? It's okay if you don't. I'm giving you a chance to respond. I realize I don't stop sometimes when I ask you rhetorical questions. But in my experience... Talking with Baptists, usually a lot of Baptists automatically think that the church calendar is a Catholic thing. And they're actually right, because it is a Catholic thing. And by Catholic, I mean what the word Catholic actually means, which is the word universal, the lowercase c. The the Christian year is a universal Christian thing that all Christians inherit. It's just sometimes emphasized more in different branches or denominations of Christianity. Some do it better than others, and maybe we Baptists, if I can be so bold, should take a hint from them. For the longest time, I never knew the extent of the church calendar. I knew bits and pieces of it. I knew there was Advent. I knew there was Christmas and Easter, and that was about it. And it wasn't until I was in college that I began associating with a bunch of Wesleyans who are just Bible-believing Christians, as, as we are, who were a little bit more liturgical than my Baptist roots. And they discussed, and I discovered, the beauty and the grace infused in the church calendar. For those that don't know, I'm just going to bring you up to speed real quick. The Christian year refers to this long, year-long calendar that the church has that marks God's activities rather than our own. We have calendars that are marked by significant events, notable events in our nation's history, like the 4th of July, Independence Day, Veterans Day, Memorial Day, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But the church has its own, except it's based on God's interventions in human history. 
Like the Jewish people in the Old Testament, whose calendars revolved around a moment known as the Exodus and the Passover, when God intervened and rescued them from Egypt, the church has developed her own cycles or seasons over the centuries, not all at once, that centered around the penultimate intervention of God in this world, God's greatest act of salvation, and can you guess who it is? Jesus. The birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and the return of Jesus. Without even realizing it, you have been passing through the moments, these seasons of the Christian year. Does anyone know what it starts with? Oh, come on, church. What does it start with? Advent. Where we anticipate the coming of Jesus, we also emphasize the second coming of Jesus because he's coming again. What is next? Christmas. Thank you very much. Where we celebrate and remember the birth of Jesus Christ. And I want to point out that Christmas is not a day. It's actually a season in the Christian year. What comes after Christmas? You may not know this one. What comes after Christmas? Does anyone know? Epiphany. That is correct. Oh, Mike, don't put the graphic on the screen. You're cheating. (laughs) I was going to be impressed for about five seconds, and then I see the graphic. You need some help. (sighs) Epiphany just simply means manifestation. In the season of Epiphany, we usually fixate on the displays of Jesus Christ, particularly his revelation as the Son of God, his divinity, which is why on Sundays like today, technically it's called Transfiguration Sunday. So don't fire me. I remember that it is Transfiguration Sunday, but I'm doing my own thing because we're Baptists, so we can do whatever we want. In three days... It'll be what's known as not Valentine's Day. What's in three days? Does anyone know? Ash Wednesday. That kicks off Lent. We're going to hold on to that one for a moment. Lent just comes from an old English word that means springtime. Lent will culminate with Holy Week that starts on a Sunday. What is the Sunday that kicks off Holy Week? Palm Sunday. Thank you. Then we have Monday, Thursday, which celebrates and remembers Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Then we have Good Friday, remembers the crucifixion, Holy Saturday, and then what's next? Come on. Easter, that's right, which once again is not a day, it's actually a season in the Christian year where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ironically, did you realize that every Sunday is Easter? Have you ever wondered why we worship on, quote, the Lord's Day? Why we don't worship on Saturdays like Jewish people, it's because of... Easter. We even revolve our entire weeks around what Jesus did. After Easter comes what? I'm running out of space. Not Ascension Sunday is correct, but what else comes after the season? Holy Spirit comes down with fire. Pentecost. Thank you. Don't correct me on spelling. It's probably wrong where we remember that the Lord's commissioning of a mission that is not completed yet, that he has given to us, he has given the power of the Holy Spirit and the ongoing unfinished mission of the church that we inherit, that after Epiphany is called, I'm running out of space, but does anyone know what it's called? It's the large chunk of the year, ordinary time. Kind of anticlimactic, but that's what it is. Time of discipleship and maturing and growth. It actually ends the Sunday before Advent starts. Does anyone know what it's called? Christ the King Sunday, 
where we remember that Jesus is currently reigning and we also anticipate the full reign of Jesus Christ. As my worship professor in college, Dr. Cherry, would say, in a real way, the Christian year is all about Jesus. Isn't that kind of cool? Just plain and simple. It's a helpful tool designed to guide and help you walk through the totality of Jesus' life. Then now and in the future, reminding us what God did, what he is doing, and what God will do one day. Each year, we retrace the journey of Christ from the manger to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. It's helpful. And through living life with these Wesleyan friends, my Wesleyan brothers and sisters, I discovered that they leaned into it just a little bit more and they would incorporate it not only in their routines and rhythms as a corporate body it would influence the songs that they sang at church the sermon topics the readings that they would have but they also incorporated it privately and individually that during these seasons they would change their personal rhythms and routines to reflect the season of the church they were in, just like we do in real life when Christmas rolls around or when Easter rolls around. We change a bit of who we are to reflect the season we're in. And so in three days, we're about to enter the season of Lent. And if Lent is to Easter what Advent is to Christmas, Lent is the time of anticipating our Lord's passion and his death and ultimately his resurrection. That we feel this cosmic shift as it is in the story, as the Son of God has his eyes set on Jerusalem, but ultimately Calvary. It is meant to be a time of intentional reflection, to focus on Christ's journey to the cross, to remember his sufferings. But in that time, we also examine our own discipleship, our own battles with temptation and the strongholds of sin in our lives, where we reconcile our own pain and heartache and grief coming from a broken world, that we honestly lament that things are not right and things are not okay. It's a time that we set aside us for penance and rededication and reflection. And traditionally, you probably know that the season of Lent has been marked by incorporating fasting. Fasting is just the giving up of something or the abstinence from something for the purposes of spiritual formation. And it's taken on different forms throughout the centuries among different people groups and different Christian denominations. In the early centuries, in the evening, what they would do is they would not eat meat or fish or eggs or butter. Those were all forsaken in the evenings. Those restrictions have since been laxed over the centuries. Present day, vestiges of it still exist in more liturgical congregations. You're probably familiar that around this time of year, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, they will fast from all wheat, all meat on Fridays, right? Except fish. So if you ever see these fish fries at Roman Catholic churches, encourage you to participate in those. That's why they're doing it through Lent. In college, I was introduced to fasting during Lent in a different way, that my group of friends, they encouraged me to join them in fasting during the the six weeks or the 40 days of Lent to Easter. And if you're doing the math, it's actually not 40 days. It's actually 46 days. Why is it 40 days? Does anyone realize? I told it to you earlier. You don't count Sunday. Why? It's Easter. You guys need to wake up. The Super Bowl's in like five hours, so it's uh, so bad math. You got to wake up a little bit. <clears throat> but my friends, they weren't fasting from food, though you can. The fasting is never explicitly defined in the Bible, only the instruction to fast. You can fast from things that aren't food. 
But they were choosing to fast during Lent from particular commodities or luxuries or activities. So, for example, some of them would say, for Lent, I am not going to eat sweets. No chocolate, no candy, no desserts. Or for Lent, I'm not going to drink caffeinated beverages, coffee, soda, energy drinks. During Lent, I'm going to give up a certain form of media, whether that's video games or watching TV, watching Netflix, YouTube. Or some of them would say, I'm going to give up social media, Facebook, Instagram, things like that. And while these things in moderation aren't necessarily sinful or wrong, you can discover that these things in our lives without warning could be controlling us. Idols, even. Distractions from our walk with God. And the the thought process is, if you take time and prayer and think through it with the Holy Spirit, is there something in your life that is illuminated in your life that you want to temporarily abstain from during Lent? Whatever that is. And throughout Lent, whatever you felt, these urgings or these cravings or these desires to use those, whatever it is, you would then use that time to focus on the cross. So instead of spending time on Facebook, for example, when you felt that urge, read scripture instead. Or maybe journal about something. Or instead of watching TV, you would spend that time in prayer. Or maybe be out in solitude in nature. Maybe you listen to a sermon on a podcast or turn on some Christian music. During the six-week period of Lent, we would substitute time with God for whatever we were fasting from. And since college, I have personally continued this practice in Lent. Each year before Ash Wednesday or before Lent begins, God and I, I, we just kind of sit down and I just figure out what I want to fast from this year. Some years I've done social media. Some years I've done YouTube. Some years I've just done soda. There's things that change from year to year, but I found that this is such a great grace in my life that God has used this to shape myself. I'm just speaking from personal experience. But I don't do this at any other point in the year. I reserve it for Lent because it reminds me of the reason for the season. It helps me focus, my pr- reorient my priorities, to realize that my loves may be out of whack, that the amount of time and energy spent on certain hobbies and activities, I need to replace that with God a little bit more, to dismantle the high places and toss out the idols in my own life that I didn't realize maybe I've made throughout the previous year. It invites me to pause. In the midst of my hectic schedule, that when I get those desires or cravings, when they cross my mind, I will temporarily think, maybe I should just pause for a moment. And maybe I need to just pray. Silently to myself, no one else needs to know. No one else needs to know that I'm fasting during this time, but I'm going to do this. Instead of filling my life with mindless distractions, I incorporate more time with God and be open and available and receptive to the grace that he wants to give me that maybe he can't give me at other points of time of the year, but only during Lent. So in three days, we're about to enter this sacred season of Lent. It doesn't get much fanfare like Christmas or Easter. There are no jingles about Lent like Christmas. It's beginning to look a lot like Lent. doesn't sound really cool. And there's no treasure hunt or a fluffy mascot like with Easter. But it doesn't make Lent any less important. And I feel compelled to just make sure you knew that we're about to enter this season. And I want to invite you to practice Lent with me this year.
And as I read the story with Mary, what Mary did, I just felt that she serves as this excellent template for us. That like Mary during Lent, we do something a bit out of ordinary for ourselves to prepare Jesus for burial. When I got to thinking, preparing Jesus for burial is the essence of what Lent is. That we sacrifice something. Something costly, like that lavish perfume that we take that something and lay it at Jesus' feet or we lay it on Jesus himself. And during this season of Lent, and by doing this, we can get intimately close with Jesus right at his feet. You can do this, friends. I want you to think right now, is there something precious to you, something valuable to you, that you can give up temporarily and pour it on Jesus to help you prepare him for burial during the season of Lent? Use your imaginations. Can you think of something, something just between you and Jesus that no one else needs to know the price of, but only Jesus needs to know that you will lay on him and temporarily give up to remind you of the reason for the season? And it needs a sting of just a little bit, friends. It needs to hurt just a little bit, not excruciating, but enough to register in your heart that something is missing and you're replacing it with meditating and reflecting on the passion of the season. It needs to prick your heart and mind. So for example, I can't fast through, fast through Chiefs games through Lent. Why? Because the last game of the season's tonight. So it doesn't count, right? And so thankfully, Lent starts, before, or starts after the Chiefs season, thankfully. I need to think of something else. So for you, if you don't have Facebook, you can't fast from Facebook because you're already doing that. If you don't drink coffee, you can't fast from coffee. Pick something else, something that is personal to you, that you will replace it with something that elicits and helps you facilitate your relationship with Jesus. I'm already running late, but maybe here's just some examples. Instead of watching TV at night, you'll turn it off and read through the Gospel of John. Or maybe you'll listen to a devotional or a sermon on a podcast. Instead of doom scrolling through Facebook at Facebook at work, watching the apocalypse seemingly unfold in slow motion, take that time at your desk to silently pray. <laughs> Imagine if Christians prayed more. Pray for your coworkers, pray for your family, pray for this nation, pray for this world. Instead of <laughs> sleeping in on Sunday mornings during Lent, consider getting up and joining us and reflecting upon Jesus' descent toward Jerusalem, which we're going to do in a corporate worship setting. This will not be an easy process. It will be challenging, and sacrifices are always challenging. They're meant to draw us out of our comfort zones into the unknown where Jesus is. It will be a humbling process, letting something go, surrendering control of an aspect of our lives. It will entail perseverance and endurance and courage. And that's what Jesus embodies as he faces his own destiny awaiting him in Jerusalem. Lent is meant to be unsettling. And it's meant to be uncomfortable. It's meant to be unnerving. Because like Mary in that dinner party, we're meant to disrupt the status quo of our lives. That throughout Lent, we journey with Christ as we watch the creator of the universe get trampled on by his own creation. That he never mumbles a word. He never fights back. He subjects himself to torture and death, even death on a cross. And like Christ, we are invited to look beyond the reality of the bad and the good and to give our lives to something greater of ourselves, to take up our own cross and follow him. 
And as we journey with him, rehearsing these sacred beats in the story, we are relinquishing control of our lives and to the hands of the Father, just like God the Son did, and reminded of our limitations of, hu- of our humanness, our helplessness as sinners. And we're left waiting for an answer bigger than ourselves, wondering if Good Friday is truly how this story is going to end. And through this journey, it seems like we're dying. We have no choice but to trust the way of Jesus. And this is why Easter Sunday is is meant to be a fresh of fresh air of new life of new beginnings easter sunday is not supposed to be the one day we're excited that church is just a little bit more full it's meant to be a long awaited arrival and invasion of the new creation breaking into this world after the season of lent of chains being broken of freedom in christ of what he's done for us and so friends i want to invite you to join me you can do this I know that you are more incapable and up to the challenge. That everyone around us may write us off as doing something outrageous or irresponsible, they'll say. They'll say it's a waste of time or a waste of resources. Remember the poor, the Judases in our lives will contend. Well, like the poor, we'll always have TV shows to watch and Facebook to look at and chocolate bars to eat. But we will not always have to bury Jesus. And the opinion of Jesus is all that matters. And he knows what you're going to do. And he sees your sacrifice, your humility, and your surrender. And Jesus says it's beautiful. We're preparing him for burial. You can see why others cannot. You are anticipating how this story is going to go, not letting it resolve too quickly, living in that tension, waiting to see what God can reveal to you, perhaps that he cannot reveal to you outside the season of Lent. Do something that smells like Lent, friends. Choose something in your life to give up temporarily, safely and healthily, and then just lean in and do things to enjoy Jesus. Ignore the naysayers, persevere, focus on Jesus. It's only a few weeks but consider giving something up momentarily that allows you to lean into God in a new and a fresh way. Many times we don't need to add more things 